Welcome to the Leadership Window Podcast with Patrick Jinks. Each week, through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and professional speaker. And now, here's Patrick. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 36 of The Leadership Window. I am Patrick Jinks, leadership and strategy coach and president of The Jinx Perspective, and got a, a good friend and extraordinary leader on the show today, Heather Adams. She is uh, the, a now a two-year president of the Blue Ridge Institute, or BRI. You've heard us talk about that on this show actually a lot, and we're really going to dig into BRI today because a lot of listeners of this program can benefit from it and find it of interest. And of course, we're gonna talk about leadership in the social sector. So uh, we're gonna talk with her about this institute as a haven for nonprofit executives and about leadership in the social sector in general. But before we do, a quick note from our sponsor. Hey, this is Michael Wallace with Leadership Systems Incorporated. And on behalf of LSI, I wanna say thanks for supporting our friend Patrick Jinks and the Leadership Window Podcast. We've been partnering with Patrick for many years, and we are so proud to have him represent us as an LSI certified executive coach. As a mutual friend, we'd like to offer you exclusive rates on some of the same training that Patrick has received over the years, as well as some new experiences that we've been developing. Head over to leadershipsystems.com jinx to see the upcoming training events on our calendar and register today to keep learning and growing. Again, that's leadershipsystems.com jinx, J-I-N-K-S, for exclusive pricing on LSI's virtual and in-person training events. Thanks a lot. We appreciate Michael and Dr. Jim Smith and all the folks at LSI. And I, I hope you didn't tune out of that because it was an ad because they're offering some really good discounts on things that any leader should be able to benefit from. And that is primarily coaching training. That's what LSI really specializes in helping leaders, whether you're a manager inside your organization or you're wanting to become a professional coach, adding the coaching tool to your toolkit is an extraordinary thing. They've got a certification process if you even want to go deeper, but uh, that's their specialty is training people how to be coaches and to add that coaching mechanism into their uh, framework. Heather Adams is an accomplished leader in the field of early childhood development and education and experiences. She currently serves as the director of engagement and literacy initiatives for an initiative in Guilford County, North Carolina called Ready for School, Ready for Life. And uh, she joined the team there last year after 16 years at the helm at the Rockingham County Partnership for Children, which is a local Smart Start agency. Those of you in North Carolina are familiar with Smart Start and Virginia, their smart beginnings and different states have different initiatives. But North Carolina, I think, has been one of the, the leaders in this, at least they're one that I've heard about <laughs> for a long time in my career, going back to even my United Way days. So we'll talk a little bit about uh, early childhood work and the work that she's doing there and helping to lead. Her prior experience includes uh, a Montessori classroom teacher. She worked with the Greensboro Children's Museum during the design and implementation phase there. She, so she clearly has a passion for children. Um, but it is her role, her unique role as the president of BRI that I'd love to spend time 
in today's episode on, in particular, and BRI, formerly known as the Blue Ridge Institute. And I, we still have to say that because people don't know what BRI is. But we're going to talk about that. And uh, it is an extraordinary, it's it's part organization, part gathering, part network. We don't even know what to call ourselves sometimes. But anyway, we're going to talk about it today. And, um, and we're going to talk about some early childhood. And we're going to talk about leadership in the social sector. Heather, I'm just so thrilled that you've carved out the time for us been looking forward to this episode welcome to the show thanks so much patrick i'm delighted to be here and appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today well the honor is mine and our listeners uh really get a treat for this i i want to start i think by just having you tell us first of all about the initiative this new initiative that you're helping to lead in guilford county uh the ready ready initiative just tell us a little more about that and what its intention is and why it's important Sure, absolutely. So uh, Ready Ready is a early childhood systems building initiative. So uh, the aim is to build an innovative and connected system of care for children and families uh, prenatal through age eight here in Guilford County, North Carolina. So uh, our our main cities are Greensboro and High Point. Um, And we have roughly 6,000 children born each year in the county. Um, And so our goal is ultimately to have a system in place where families and caregivers can access the services they need to ensure their children are healthy, um, that they ultimately enter kindergarten ready to succeed. And then uh, that big benchmark is uh, achieving greater success at the end of third grade on third grade reading scores, knowing that as a huge predictor of academic success. And while we are looking at that system as a whole, definitely building that with an equity lens. And so want to ensure that the disparities that exist um, beginning at birth in many cases uh, between white children and children of color are narrowed um, throughout that child's first eight years. Um, So, you know, ultimate goal there, a third grade reading score is improving, but also um, not just improving across the board, but seeing those disparities between our children, white children and children of color uh, minimized over time. So uh, the initiative is uh, heavily um, supported by the Blue Meridian Partners, which is a national philanthropic group, um, and then our statewide partner, the Duke Endowment. Um, so a newer organization that is rapidly growing as the work develops um, over the past about five years, and then moving forward, uh, we have several more years of development uh, to build that system. Well, it sounds exciting, and um, I, it sounds like a, just a, a perfect role for you, and I can hear the excitement in your voice just since you started. I remember how excited you were to, to move over there after being at the Rockingham County Partnership for Children, and so obviously you've had a, a real bent on early childhood. How did you get into this early childhood work? What led you there, and, and how did you get to that place in your journey, or to this place uh, in your journey? Yeah, So, you know, I wish that there was a glamorous answer to that question, Um, (laughs) but I'll tell you, it's really quite simple. Um, I knew from the time I was a teenager that I wanted to work with children and originally thought that I would be a classroom teacher Um, and spent a couple of years early on out of college um, in preschool classroom and then a few years in a Montessori classroom. And then when my daughter was born, realized that I still wanted to work with children and do something to impact children and families, but knew that being in the classroom with children all day probably was not the best fit for me to then come home and be a parent, (laughs) you know, a totally plugged in parent at night. Um, And I say that very honestly, because I think that's a path many people probably find themselves 
one. Um, and I also will be very honest and say when I first started working early childhood, it was because I loved working with children um, and knew that their education was important. But the further I've gotten into early childhood work, the more I've learned, especially about brain development and how rapidly um, young children's brains develop and then what a huge impact those early experiences have on them lifelong. And then also knowing what a huge impact uh, a strong early childhood foundation has on our society in a big picture kind of way. So knowing that foundational skills that children need to be successful adults are laid in the first five years of life. And so how do we ensure children get a strong start? Um, I think that, I think, I think investments in early childhood are one of the smartest things we can do. And so I'm thrilled to have had the opportunity to spend the bulk of my career working in the early childhood sector. Yeah, when I was with United Way, we were heavy into uh, supporting early childhood work. And and in um, just about 40 miles north of you in Danville, Virginia, we helped launch the Smart Beginnings Initiative there and immediate results. And I mean, immediate as in we got a like a five and a half million dollar three year grant to to like let's go deep let's like really get this thing uh, going at a great regional foundation there to help and one of the first things that the Smart Beginnings Initiative did there was duplicate a very effective um, pre kindergarten education system that the public school was running in the southern part of the town very successful highest kindergarten readiness rates of anywhere in the city and we took that money and we duplicated it because they had a lot of great things going they were doing they were doing everything right the quality of the instruction the parental engagement just the curriculum everything we duplicated it literally built another one in the northern part of town also run by the public school system. So this was a partnership between the public schools and the foundation and United Way and the Virginia Early Childhood Foundation in Richmond and all these entities. And within like two years of the school opening, the kindergarten readiness rate increased significantly. I want to say 10 to 12%. I mean, it just, it really took a jump and a big part of it came right out of, part of it came right out of that new school and part of it came from just the awareness and the other things that we were doing. But you can move fast if you focus on it as a community. And and I, I, I will say one more thing, and I want to get your take on this. Mm-hmm. You know, having a new grandson, <laughs> he's two now, mm-hmm. and he's two. And and so mm-hmm. recently I'm I you know, we've we heard and preached all the time in United Way that, you know, the brain is developed, you know, ninety percent developed in the first five years, at least that was the stat we were using at the time. And then I recently heard that 80% of the brain is developed in the first three years. So, and by the way, correct, give me the the most current, you know, sort of um, accurate statistics on that in, in a second. But regardless of what the actual, you know, specific number is, that first three to five years, there is so much happening. And you forget, as parents, you forget, as grandparents, you forget, as educators, you can easily forget, hey, we're not going to get this five years back. (laughs) We get one shot at this. We got to make sure we give this child the absolute best start possible. So I, I can't, you, you can't, find a bigger you know champion of the concept or idea <laughs> than I am but it's just hard to forget it's about it's about keeping it top of mind in a community was that is that your experience absolutely I think um, 
And I think that that is one of our goals um, in Guilford County is how do we become known as a county that is really focused on our children and specifically our very young children. Um, and the statistics you mentioned are still the ones we're using. Um, so 80% of a child's brain development happens in those first three years. Yeah. And so really critical that we ensure um, families have the knowledge they need, the access to the resources they need to help ensure that those three years are packed with positive, you know, quality experiences. Yeah, um, uh, oh, man. I mean, talk about the 80-20 rule. And by mm -hmm. the way, speaking of investment, we had, depending on who you look to, the lowest return on investment in early childhood that, that, that we knew of when we were kind of studying this stuff and presenting around the community and writing grants and things was about seven to one. We ran into yep. some studies that showed 20 to one return on investment, just depending on how you calculate the, the, um, the economics over the span of a child's life and what that means in the community in terms of healthcare costs and incarceration costs and remedial school and job median income, so many things impacted by it. And I don't know that there's another area where you could make a social sector philanthropic investment and get a greater return on investment for your entire community. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, I guess I don't even think, I feel like I know from the work that's been done and the return that's been, you know, I've seen in my, in my experience, um, that investment, the return on the investment is huge. And I think you are absolutely correct. There isn't, and there, there's data to back it up. There's not another investment that provides that type of return. Um, I think the challenge for some at times is there are some immediate returns you can see. And then some of those returns you see over the course of, you know, 15 years. Um, so when we, you know, when we invest in our infants and toddlers right now, um, and we know their high school graduation rates will be higher, we've got to ultimately wait until that, their high school graduation to see that, that ultimate success. But along the way, there are numerous benchmarks that can be measured um, to show that progress. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you, um, yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It, it, it is the, the most, the most valuable investment we can make, um, is building, building strong communities to raise our children in. And there's um, and when I say our children, I think, you know, broadly about maybe not, not just birth children, but all the children in our community. Yeah. They're all our children that I, you know, um, Vaughn, Vaughn Grisham, who is, I'm pretty sure the cousin to the author, John Grisham, that everybody knows. Vaughn Grisham is um, a, a sociologist. He's probably retired now, but he's done a lot of work in neighborhood revitalization and workforce initiatives and community development sorts of things. And he came to Danville and he told them that the number one driver of the future workforce economy and he, actually, this is how he opened his presentation. And he had, he had, you know, somebody tell me what you think the number one driver of, of the workforce economy, say 20 years from now will be. And you can imagine, you know, hands were raised and he was calling on people and they were saying, you know, technology. And someone else was saying, you know, the use of, you know, AI and someone else was saying, you know, the environment. And, and he goes, well, those are all good. And those are all going to be great indicators of the workforce economy 15 to 20 years from now, but you're actually all off and it's not even close. It's early childhood development today. Number one driver of the workforce economy 15 to 20 years from now in this community. So it's, it's critical stuff. I'm, I'm just, uh, 
it's it's also special work <laughs> like it you know you get you kind of got to be carved out for this and uh, of course you know you have a love for children and um just sort of you know kind of moved into this work i will ask you this um the work of preparing children in a community when you say our children as you mentioned a moment ago and and you say that's really our children as in the children in our community um getting them ready for life cannot be done by a single organization. That's not going to be like the ACME early childhood education center <laughs> in your community that, that is responsible for that. This is truly one of those ecosystem kinds of things. You need policy, you need parental engagement, you need equity, as you mentioned it, boy, there's another one. I mean, I'm, I'm learning so much when I work with clients about the equity issue and the best thing people can do to communicate this equity thing is to just show the data just to mm -hmm. show the data. You can see those graphs, you know, here's the kindergarten readiness rate over five years among white children. And here's the kindergarten readiness rate over five years, that same five years in this same community among children of color. And it's 20 points off or whatever it is. I mean, using mm -hmm. that data is just uh, so powerful, but it strikes me that this is an ecosystem initiative or effort, I should say. And so leadership gets real uh, complex when you get into collaborating with others. What have you learned in terms of leadership tenets about collaborative leadership that might be different and either more challenging or more rewarding and productive than just leading a single operation and, and organization in a silo? Mm -hmm. That's an excellent question. I mean, I, have having the ability to collaborate is critical. And of course, in the work that I'm currently engaged with, uh, collaboration is key. I mean, we're, we are one entity, um, you know, in a sea of many organizations. And so being able to work well with other entities is, I mean, is, is ultimately key to our long-term success. Um, I think collaboration can be hard and it can be messy um, but I think one of the ways that you build collaboration is through clear communication, through transparency, um, through a willingness to acknowledge mistakes, uh, take ownership when needed. I think, so, think those things are all really important and they all feed into building trust. I mean, ultimately, you've got to be able to build trust with whoever it is that you're working with. Um, and focus on whatever the common goal is that you're working towards. So in this case, we're working towards, uh, you know, collaborative, connective, and connected, innovative system of care. And so, you know, keeping our eye on that prize is very critical. Um, and, I, and being humble, you know, being, being able to acknowledge what, what you're able to do well and acknowledge where you need support too is really critical. That's a really big one because in a collaboration, formal or otherwise, there's usually one or two organizations that kind of step up and flex their muscles and say, we got this, right? We're the ones everybody needs to follow. And collaboration to them means just follow us, coordinate with us, run your money through us, let us make the decisions. We're going to build everything. We're going to steer everything. We're going to build the committee and we're going to call it collective, but but really we're the, we're the drivers behind this. And, it, I, and I've seen it in the collective impact framework. I've, I, by the way, I'm a huge 
um, proponent of the collective impact framework when it's done in a way that the backbone organization is not that organization that steps up and says, we're it, by the way. <laughs> it's really when the backbone organization emerges out of the collaboration as the one that makes sense to sort of frame things up. But I love that you added the humility piece to attentive collaboration and your trust and transparency were two other things that you mentioned, which of course go hand in hand when you're talking about collaboration. Um, mm-hmm. I'm working with, um, I'm working with a, a couple of organizations. One is, is a, is a group of funders and one's a group of nonprofits and they're talking about how to work better together. And, you know, in, as we begin to talk about this and this isn't unique to this community, I've heard, I've heard and seen this many times, the idea that, um, you know, we can't, we can't really be open and honest in the room or we can't, you know, there's a, there's a power, uh, there's a power equilibrium that's off balance mm-hmm. in this. And, and, um, so it's gotta be a difficult thing when you say trust, uh, can you can you talk about one or two ways that that organizations who are trying to collaborate with each other can build trust among themselves? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think you know I think at the foundation of um, of building trust is relationship building, and so you know getting getting to know mm-hmm. the partner to the table um, right. and relationship building I think is a little more challenging right now when many of us are working in virtual worlds, um, mm-hmm. and so but you know I mean being able to have just sometimes starting off with casual conversation about, about work, about life to just get to know each other, I think is, I think is key. Um, I think really understanding individuals goals and their desires. And so, um, you know, I think in, in my, in my work, I mean, of course our ultimate goal is, you know, better, better outcomes for our children, but within that, you know, different organizations have different things they focus on, but let's be honest, put, put them out on the table. Let's see how, how they all fit together. Um, and let's, let's be, you know, let's, let's be transparent about that. Just let's, let's talk about it. I feel like that is kind of the, the foundation of building, of building that trust. Um, I think, you know, you know, an ongoing collaboration, I think something that's really important is establishing what are the kind of, what are the ground rules? What are the things the group values? How, how do you want to interact? Um, let's, let's as a, as a group decide, or as a team decide, what this looks like, um, and then let's hold each other accountable for living into those um, that structure that's created. And I think that, I think that's one of the most important things. Um, and you know, while while when you step into a collaborative experience, you can't you know you can't leave different pieces of yourself at the door. I mean, you walk into that room, you are who you are. You wear lots of different hats, um, and figure out how you create space for those different hats to be present. Um, and space for the different voices to be heard, I think is really important. Um, and I think it's important. I mean, trust takes time. So you don't have one meeting and walk away and you figured it out. It takes, it's a slow, a slow methodical process, um, to, to build trust and to, to create a container and a space where you can work together. Heather, you caught me with this one. I I, I want to back up because I love what you just said about leaving who you are at the door or leaving parts of yourself at the door. We hear that all the time. We hear when you're in a collaboration, leave your agency hat at the door or leave your bank. I love that you just said that. No, don't leave that at the door. Bring it in the room with you. It's why you're here. 
Like mm-hmm. you, there's, there's a, you know, you, there's an asset, there's a perspective we need to hear. There's a, you know, you've got interests that, that are, are important for us to understand. Don't leave it at the door. Just bring your op- your own openness to understand that everybody else in the room also has a perspective and let's see where we can find the common grounds. I, I love that you said that you don't hear that very often. What you just said, uh, yeah, bring, your I whole, think it's- <laughs> bring your whole self. Yeah. And I think especially, you know, I, um, I can, I can remember, you know, in my early days as an agency director, so 10, 12 years ago, um, you know, really having to kind of embrace that when I realized my team, I mean, you know, we had, you know, someone has a sick parent, someone has a sick child. I mean, you know, someone's beloved pet passes away. Like you can't expect them to show up at work the next day as if nothing has happened. Um, and you can't just not ask the question, um, you know, you can't, you can't just ignore it and pretend that they just come back and just roll along as if, okay, well, that was just one day, like here I am back. I mean, I think you find, I think you are most productive when you are able to be a whole person. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, some people pick and choose what, what they want to leave at home. And that's, you know, I think people can make that choice, but I, I guess I think so much about social emotional well-being. I mean, when we talk about young children, we focus a lot on how do we ensure they have the social emotional skills to navigate the world, to to be ready for kindergarten. And I think as adults, we think about. I mean, you know, we we've we have a mental health crisis in our midst now. I mean, the prediction of when the pandemic ends is a mental health crisis across our world. And so, what you know, when when we say to people, I mean, or if we say to people like, you know only show up in your, you know, only show up as this person, this one, this one role. Um, we're kind of saying, you know, cut everything off. And it's like, pe- people are whole people and you can't, you just can't, you just can't do that. In my opinion. Um, I just think it's really important to bring, you bring your whole self. And um, I think about a project we're working on right now that focuses on uh, developing the strategies that will benefit the children in our community ages three to five. And so this community design team that I'm working with, we said to them in the beginning, you know, so-and-so, um, yes, we asked you to serve um, because you bring this certain perspective. You know, you work in early intervention, but we also know that you're a parent. Um, you know, you have, a, you have a, a child in public school. You're a community member. Um, you may, you know, you may go to a specific church or synagogue. Like, bring all those perspectives because they, they, enrich, they enrich the quality of, the, of what's happening in this room together, in, the, in this space together. Um, is when we embrace that, that whole self. Yeah. And that's, that ties into diversity and inclusion. I mean, when we talk about diversity, uh, most people think racial and ethnic diversity, and let's get as diverse as we can and have this balance of, but it's so much more than that. It is that, but it's so much more than that. And by bringing your whole self to the table, when everyone does that, you have diversity of thought, you have diversity of background experiences and education and things that we can learn from each other. You have diversity of interests. You have diversity of assets that people can bring to the table. Um, it's just, it's, uh, I just love that you said it. I'm, I thank you for that. I think that's a, that's a really rich thing that we blow over sometimes. Um, I want to ask you one more thing about your own leadership, because one of the things I've noticed about you, Heather, is how optimistic you are. Um, you and, and in, uh, talk about a mental health crisis. I mean, for the last year, it's been really difficult. I mean, I, I, I'm coaching 
leaders for a living. So I get to hear the the good, the bad, and the ugly of leadership inside organizations and people are struggling. It's tough. It's been hard. It's been for everything from funding to figuring out how to work from home to, you know, losing money to losing a sense of connectivity to fearing the virus itself. It's been a lot to say grace over. You're working around an initiative that is directly touching our children on a daily basis. There has to be a sense of optimism and positivity and, and uh, a vision forward. What are your, what would you say are your sort of um, your, your tricks for that? Now, a lot of it's just, you know, your natural inclination, but as you're leading, when things are hitting you, you also have to be intentional about maintaining a level of optimism and helping your team do that. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big believer in maintaining that level of optimism and with, with the transparency that it can be really challenging. Um, I mean, I think for myself, I mean, one or well, a couple of ways I really think help me maintain optimism is that um, I do have a strong commitment to maintaining boundaries and taking breaks um, and really making sure I take care of my own wellness in order to be more effective when I'm in, in my workspace. Um, and I think that, I guess I think about my family too. And I think that I I think my family really instilled in me um, just sort of like an optimistic perspective on the world, which it is challenging at times to maintain. I mean, I, you know, there are days I catch myself in the kind of spiral of, you know, thinking about children specifically and the impact of the last year of virtual learning. And Mm. I think about kindergartners who are in this foundational part of their education and they're learning to read and they're doing that in these new and strange ways. Um, but I just find that I have to maintain hope and that that belief that like we are going to get through this. Um, I think I'm a firm believer in that quote. Um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and just really, I mean, thinking like sometimes you have to really dig deep, but just knowing that you put one foot in front of the other um, and you do your best to know that things things will get better over time. Um, I mean doesn't mean things will never be hard or, you know, discouraging, um, but things, things will get better. Um, and I think part of, you know, part of maintain optimism too, is having, um, relationships with, you know, friends, peers, colleagues that you can really confide in when you're not feeling as optimistic. So knowing, knowing who those support people are in your network, who, can help kind of prop you up and, you know, lift you up when, when you're struggling, um, I think is really, really key when you're a leader. Um, and maybe something that I think I say a lot is I think part of how you maintain optimism again is having a balance and having, um, and having boundaries. So knowing when you need to step away and recharge, um, knowing when you need to say no. I think leaders often fall into a trap of saying yes to everything. And it's okay to say no. It's okay mm. to know what your limits are. Um, because when you say yes, you want to be able to give your full self to whatever the ask is. That's and good. so learning learning to say no. It, it, not only is it okay to say no, it's totally appropriate and the right thing to do sometimes. <laughs> you yep. know, it's like, it's expected at times. You can't, you can't say yes to everything. I love it. 
Um, one of the tenets that you put in there on optimism was to leverage your network. And I think that's a great segue into talking about BRI. So um, I, I want to make sure that we reserve probably the rest of the show. I really want to talk about BRI because we've mentioned it several times. We've had a number of what we call ridgers in the, on this show before. And so we go, yeah, we met at the BRI. We met at Blue Ridge. And a lot of our listeners are probably going, what the heck is this BRI and this Blue Ridge they keep talking about? And I keep saying, well, we'll have an episode on it at some point. And so here, here it is at least one, uh, our first crack at it. And we couldn't have a better person on right now than the current president of BRI. So um, I'm going to just very quickly remind our, our listeners that BRI stands for the Blue Ridge Institute, which technically we're, we're not naming ourselves the Blue Ridge Institute anymore. We've, we've shortened our name to BRI and there's a whole history behind that we won't go into, but essentially it's an organization that started in 1927 for Southern community service executives. And now it, we're not limited to any Southern geographic border. And it's not just community service executives mm -hmm. per se. It's still nonprofit leaders um, in terms of executive directors and such. But we have consultants and coaches. We have people who are just involved in social impact, social entrepreneurs, leaders of big movements. Um, this is really about people. I, I, I like the way you put it, I think, recently. I don't know if that was in a BRI newsletter or what, but people looking to make social change. So um, that's what BRI is. And really, it's an annual gathering, but it's become so much more for, for people that have have joined it it's technically not a membership uh and so you kind of don't join bri but then again you kind of do um but for for those of us that got involved with bri uh, we'll say that got engaged with bri we're finding it to be so much more and i think i don't know about you i do know about you i, I know you'll say this um this this is that network for us that we can lean on that we can call on when we really need that lift or that extra resource or that helping hand or that piece of wisdom or that mentoring or that best practice. This is nice. that network for us. And, um, I'm going to stop there because, uh, you're the one who wears the red shawl, which by the way, is the mantle of leadership at BRI. Yes. The leader literally wears a red shawl over their shoulders. And, uh, we, we don't have to tell that whole story. We want to leave a little bit to the imagination <laughs> of people. Right. But, um, Heather talk about, I want to just turn this to you now and just have you talk about, first of all, your, your entree into BRI and, uh, your experience as president of BRI, because you, you have worn the red shawl at one of the most, if not the most challenging, I mean, you could go back to, you know, world wars and things that BRI s survived, but, but in, in recent memory, you've led this organization incredibly effectively, by the way, in, in its most challenging times, just like everybody else, because we're a national network that leans on a physical gathering every year that's the that's the culmination of it all and here we are for two years not able to do that um talk to us tell us tell us your story of how you got in and um and about your the joys and challenges of being president of this network right now Sure, absolutely. So I'll, let me first say thank you for your kind words um definitely has been a unique experience um so I, I mean, the words that you use to describe BRI are spot on. Um, I mean, we we are a really unique, unique organization. So 
um, founded in 1927. Um, and I think someday it's amazing that we are still plugging along um, and in some ways reinventing ourselves as we go a little bit uh, to make our way through through modern modern times, for lack of a better word. Well, we are the last regional one of the, you know, there used to mm -hmm. be one of these in every region of the country and the Southern region was the last one standing. And so now we've, we've removed, so when you talk about survivability, yeah, there were others who didn't survive it. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, so, I mean, there are times I have to really pause and think, gosh, like we, 94 years that we, we have survived. Mm -hmm. um, so I first, attended Blue Ridge in 2010. Um, so from Fall Creek Falls State Park in Tennessee. Um, and my path to Blue Ridge, I think is, you know, I'm, I think everyone probably has a unique story, but I had, I had several colleagues who, who had attended. Um, my daughter's grandmother was a longtime Ridger. Um, and so I had, had heard about it over the years. Um, but also knew for a long time that it was, it was her thing. It was her week in the summer. Um, it was a little mysterious, a little secretive, um, her, you know, her, her, her son definitely didn't know all the details about it. Um, and that's, you know, that was kind of, kind of it, but I knew, I knew it was a powerful, powerful piece of piece of her life. Uh, so I, um, you know, was, was invited to attend, um, and I think it's worth noting, it took me a couple years to come. So um, our sort of sort of rule is that when you um, are nominated um, or self-nominated at this point and you're brought into the fold, um, you can, I guess, sort of defer your attendance for up to three years. So I was someone who deferred until that third year um, just because I it took me a little while to figure out, you know, was, was I going to do it? Um, and here I am years later wearing that um, infamous crocheted red shawl. Um, and so clearly it stuck, you know, it, it worked. Um, I was pretty quickly hooked. Um, and I think a couple things are what really attracted me. Um, one, the community, um, that's created and the, the professional network that I've been exposed to of leaders who are committed to making this world a better place in all different kinds of ways, um, I mean, of course, my work in early childhood. So my professional network when I first started attending was very, was very, very much um, folks in kind of my line of work. And so to be able to connect with leaders from so many different sectors um, was was really powerful to me um, and has been really impactful, I feel like, on my uh, in my personal life and in my professional life too, just you know, seeing the connections across nonprofits, um, regardless of mission small, large, medium size. Um, I think that has been incredible. Um, you know, we, we have the tagline at the Blue Ridge Institute of um, learn, lead, renew. And I think those three words um, in so many ways are, I mean, they really are the essence of who we are. So coming together to learn, you know, learning, developing new skills, um, being exposed to, you know, world-class speakers, um, who bring a variety of different perspectives to us, um, opportunities to lead. I mean, we are a primarily volunteer organization. Um, we, we hope in the next uh, year, foreseeable future, to hire our first part-time executive director, but we survived for many, many years solely volunteer volunteers. Um, and just in the past about five to seven years, have we had um, some part-time administrative support 
And so, I mean, we, we are a group of leaders who also lead in this organization, um, which I think it's a, it's a powerful experience to lead with other leaders. And then the renewal piece um, is one of my favorite parts of Blue Ridge. So being able to step away from day-to-day work, um, be able to be in a retreat setting. Um, of course, we've met in the mountains for years. So um, to be away from the hustle and bustle um, is so important. Um, I think the fact that we structure our days with a, in a way that there's um, professional development in a traditional kind of way, so speakers and workshops, and then there is the opportunity to connect and build relationships in more casual settings. So whether it's playing volleyball or going on a hike or um, sitting on the front porch of a cabin and connecting with other leaders, I think that um, BRI does an incredible job of really wrapping so many different opportunities into one week. Um, And so of course, you know, a year ago this time, we were, um, well, I guess a year minus a month, you know, we were pushing forward, planning a really fantastic in-person conference. And uh, we pretty quickly had to put the brakes on and pivot um, like everyone did. I mean, we realized we're not, we're not the only ones, um, but I'm incredibly proud of the organization and the, the board that we've had in place that were able to quickly um, pivot and put together a virtual gathering. Um, I think probably what is, um, really awesome about what we were able to do last summer is that we have a broad age range of attendees. Um, we have a broad range of folks when it comes to tech, tech skills and tech abilities. Um, and we were still able to gather via zoom, um, and learn together and lead together. And even in, um, simpler ways, be able to renew together in a way that, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure I would have ever dreamed that would have happened. I think that's, I mean, and here we are a few months away from preparing to do that again, just knowing that it's not, it's not time yet to commit to being in person. Although, um, gosh, we really wish we could be. Um, but just knowing that we, we will navigate, I mean, I mean, I think it's maintain that optimism, like we will navigate through a virtual gathering again, and then we will hold out incredible hope that 2022 is going to look different. Um, very different, we hope. Well, first of all, you really put some great descriptors on BRI there uh, throughout that. And I just want to say again about your leadership. Um it was a powerful conference on Zoom last year, a very powerful. And we had some very powerful, we had some deep experiences in our in our breakout uh, groups and things, and in, in telling our personal stories and learning more about each other, but it, it, for a for a deeper purpose around uh, around equity, mm-hmm. and and so it was very powerful. And not only that, but in the in the last couple of years, we've leveraged the the technologies for m- more. Um, informal gatherings. So we've had, you know, Zoom coffee and Zoom after hours and Zoom, you know, and, I, and again, you know, this, we didn't invent Zoom. We're not the innovators of Zoom, but, but we have, um, we have been willing to move quickly and to adapt and to find the various levels of technological support we need to pull off a, a big conference. And, um, 
this this team is just and and I I, I feel like it's a team. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're all we're all really trying to do the same thing. We're trying to make our communities better, make our country better, make our worlds better in in what we're doing. Um, you mentioned the front porch. The front porch, as a phrase, is is something of great significance in BRI. Um, for until let's see, for the first eighty years, I think it was of the institute. The institute was held at the Blue Ridge Assembly near near Asheville, Black Mountain, North Carolina area. And um, at the assembly, there are these uh, different, you know, residence halls and things that, that, you know, we would all stay in and each, you know, we all kind of split up and some of us were at Abbott Hall and some of us were at, I don't remember the names of them. I was there one year before we moved. But the, the um, iconic green rocking chairs on all of the porches at all of the residence halls on, at the Blue Ridge Assembly, that's where the magic happened at BRI because we did, we have world-class speakers. I mean, I could go through them, you know, everyone from, you know, renowned politicians to world-class photographers and artists to best-selling authors and speakers and consultants and you name it. But the real magic happened in those green rocking chairs on the front porches in, in the early mornings and in the evenings. And we would just wind down and just connect with each other, real connection, real deep. And sometimes we'd talk about work and sometimes we would talk about, you know, our families and sometimes we'd talk about the cities we live in or, or whatever it might be. But it was a sense of connection, deep, deep connection that you just never, you never move past. You're, you're once you said, I think you said earlier, I was hooked. Same, mm-hmm. same here. Uh, and by the way, it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a week for first of all, or at least it has been historically a full week. And, um, and it's a little traditionally, we've got some quirks, some things that we do that are kind of people going, what a red shawl. What, what is that? What's that funny song you guys sing? (laughs) It's it's like, but you know, the way I've described it, it's sort of like part youth camp, part family reunion, part leadership conference, part vacation. Um, uh, and part just networking and informal learning. It's, it's really a unique experience, um, as you said it. So I want to ask you, from your perspective, who is BRI for? If, uh, you know, for our listeners out there, for example, who, who should consider BRI? Mm-hmm. It's an excellent question. Um, and you're right. You said just a moment ago that BRI is not for everyone. Um, and I think it's I think it's fair to say that not everyone gets hooked the first summer they come. Some folks, um, you know, takes a couple couple conferences to feel kind of hooked. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that BRI um, is really for folks who I mean, of course, they have to be working in this you know social change arena, social mm-hmm. sector arena, um, and senior leadership roles. Um, but I think it's really for folks who are, um, and I hate to sound trite, but who are committed to making the world a better place. Um, and in, in a broad sense, because we do have folks from all different sectors and who are looking for the opportunity to connect with 
an incredibly unique group of people and a unique group of leaders. Um, and then folks who are tr willing to try and do something new. I think, I mean, I guess I think about, um, you know, we often have um, held our conference or the, I've been to two locations now, both of which, for example, um, you know, internet connectivity and wireless <laughs> signal wasn't the greatest, um, which can be really stressful for some. Uh, for me, I love it. Um, I love knowing that I can be disconnected enough to really unplug. Um, but but that that can be challenging for some. Um, at the same time, I think that um, it's only as challenging as we make it. Um, I think that that's we we all can benefit from that unplugging a bit. Um, so I think you know people. I think social change agents who are looking for an opportunity to grow professionally in a unique way you know, in a little bit of a different setting. Um, I think, I think it's a space that's, they should give it a try. Um, well, all, all very well said. And of course this year's <laughs> conference again is virtual, but with a twist. Um, and this is what I love about your innovation and leadership. You're adding a new dimension to it, which is, um, we're going to, we're going to really sort of try to pull off some smaller regional gatherings, um, safely, <laughs> but without cramming all, you know, 100 and whatever of us into a, into a room. Um, while we also have the virtual capability of all coming together. So I'm excited about that and how that turns out. Um, I, I think that's going to be a, a, a nice addition. And I think we're at a place where we can do that. And then next year we'll be ready to, to dig back in and, and, uh, meet in person again. But, um, for this year, what, what would you say, uh, we might as well go ahead and, and sort of get this, get this plug official here. What's the best way for, um, someone to get more information or to get involved or engaged with BRI, even in this year's virtual slash hybrid <laughs> version of it? Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, we, on our website, you know, blueridgeleaders.org. Uh, we have a lot of, you know, the historical information about the Institute, and we also have the, um, the nomination forms. And so um, there, I mean, for years and years and years um, to attend BRI was a, a process where you were nominated by a current um, Ridger, current attendee. Um, and several years back, we opened up the process where you can still go that route, but also there is a self-nomination process. Um, so really anyone who meets that criteria of being um, a senior leader in a social change entity across the country um, can nominate themselves if, you know, if they don't have a Blue Ridge connection. Um, and I think the, the virtual gathering actually offers a really unique opportunity for someone who is new in that um, Sometimes it's hard when something's new to, you know, can I carve out a week? Can I really, you know, be gone for a whole week? And of course, you've heard me say multiple times, you can't, you can unplug. I believe everyone is totally capable of doing it. Um, but maybe for someone who's a little bit hesitant, uh, the, the virtual gathering is shorter. So beginning on Sunday evening, and we'll go through um, Wednesday afternoon. Um, and so it may provide the opportunity for someone who is like, mm, I'm curious, I'm not sure 
to, to test test it out in a different way. Um, so in that shorter, shorter virtual virtual gathering. That's a great um, point. This is a good year to get to know BRI a little bit because you will mm-hmm. get to know the people and you will you will immediately see <laughs> that these are just extraordinary people. I mean, these are some of the the people in BRI are leading some of the biggest, coolest stuff in the social sector around. They really are. And um, they're brilliant and they have a combined set of experience that, you know, we ought to do the math on it sometime in terms of the, <laughs> the leadership experience that BRI has. Um, so that's a really good point. This really is, and it would cost less as well. There's still a registration fee, but there, mm-hmm. you know, there's not the travel cost and the housing costs and all that you would have at the in person. So see, there's that optimism again. You took a, you took something and made it, uh, you know, like this is a great year to do that. Great point. Yeah. And I think, I think it's a great opportunity in that sense. Um, and you, you, when you started by saying that, um, you know, we have folks who are leading these huge social change efforts. I think one of the things that I love about BRI is that I mean, we said earlier, there's, you know, there's folks there who run organizations that have thousands of staff. Mm-hmm. There are folks there who run an organization where they are the one part-time employee. That's right. Um, and one of the things that I really love is the opportunity to connect with people who do do things that are so much larger in scope and size at times in the organizations I've worked for. Um, but that, but you don't even realize that in your conversation. So when I talk to a colleague who, you know, has a staff of several hundred, um, you know, I mean, in our conversation, I don't even realize that. Whereas I, you know, when I was an executive director, I had a staff of 16. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of a unique thing about Blue Ridge too, is that in that space, we're all there, you know, to learn and to grow. Um, and, so, you know, size of our budget and those kinds of things doesn't really, doesn't really matter. Um, whereas I think there's other environments that you're in where there's just kind of this feels a little competitive almost is, that's the word that comes to mind. Um, and I really value the fact that Blue Ridge is a really open and welcoming space. Um, and I think we, we, we do our best to create, create and make that space for anyone who wants to be there. That is so true. There's no, you know, that the arrogance is not there among people who are leading bigger organizations. Not only that, but if you, you know, those, those sort of part-time executive directors who are the only <laughs> staff person, they are as respected and trusted and leaned on and listened to as, as anyone in, in the organization. I mean, it really mm-hmm. is a very inclusive environment. Here's another thing that you, you made me think of that I always say about BRI. BRI doesn't let you fail. And I, that's kind of hard to explain for people who haven't experienced it. But what I mean by that is, um, it it really is a, um, it really is an uplifting organization in every way. So first of all, yes, you're listened to and respected for the experience in leadership that you bring to the table. You are, there's, there's a, there's a talent show each year. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we, we didn't do it last year with the virtual, but, but it's an amazing thing. And our kids, people bring their families to BRI as guests and stay in the cabin with them. And there's a youth leadership Academy and there's, so people literally use this as family vacation. Sometimes we've got families that do that and the kids are invited to come and perform at the talent show along with the Ridgers who have all kinds of different talents. Some sing, some dance, some tell corny jokes uh, as a talent. Um, we've had all kinds of, of great, uh, unique talents. 
And when those kids perform, it doesn't matter if they mess up or if they just, you know, they're nervous. The Ridgers make you feel like you just performed and got a standing ovation at Carnegie Hall. Like it's, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's the most amazing thing how Ridgers lift each other up. And that's just, that's, that's one example in a very informal setting, but that spirit of support and belief and, um, and just, uh, the, the wraparound, the virtual hug that is BRI, it, it really is absorbed throughout the organization. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. And I, I realized as you were speaking, we hadn't even talked about the Youth Leadership Academy or the fact that families come, but that is that is a huge part of the Blue Ridge experience for, for those who that is appealing to is the opportunity to bring a family, to bring your children and have them participate in the, you know, Youth Leadership Academy Um mm-hmm which, you know, really is modeled after Blue Ridge in terms of helping young people develop their own leadership skills. Um, That's right. And their care for their community and their responsibility to lead in their communities. And uh, yeah, when we've literally watched kids grow up, those of us that have been in BRI long enough, and I got in a couple of years ahead of you, and we literally, I mean, kids who were, you know, just toddlers and, and middle schoolers. And now they're, they're, they're going to college and they're leading these great things. Like, wow, this is amazing. And it really is an environment that fosters this kind of, um, leadership. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how else to put it. No, absolutely. I think, I think that is one of the things that does make Blue Ridge unique is that, that, that space is there. Um, and the space is there, there, there are many folks who, Opt not to bring a family and this, you know, this right. is their week to be away. And that's, that's valued as much as those who choose to bring their family. But you're right. It's for a long time, Richard, it, it is really fun to watch kids grow up um, over, you know, over the course of seeing them each summer. Um, well, I feel like I've grown up <laughs> a little bit in Blue Ridge. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the other thing is that for, for many of the, We'll, we'll just say that the bulk of the membership is people who are CEOs or executive directors of nonprofits. Okay. And they come without their board members and they come without their staff. It's just them. And it's a place for them to kind of escape and kind of get into a place where they can truly let their hair down and um, both commiserate and ideate with people, uh, you know, their peers There are others who say, you know what, I've got senior, my organization's big enough that I've got senior leaders um, who are, you know, vice presidents or they're in the so-called C-suite or whatever, who I'm going to bring with me. Like, we'll make this a thing. So you kind of get that choice. If it's a place you want to just sort of get away and be able to talk to people more transparently and open and let this be sort of you time to to regenerate yourself, Mm -hmm. great. Um, and if you've got other senior leaders in your organization that can be a part of this with you, it's not intended to be, you know, like just bring your whole staff, you know, it's not, it truly is people in senior leadership roles. That's what makes BRI, BRI, but yeah, there's just a lot of flexibility there too. And we Mm -hmm. could go on another hour really and talk about (laughs) BRI because we, what we could do is tell stories and we may do that sometime. We may, uh, maybe we need to get, um, several of us on and do an episode of just some BRI stories and let people get a sense of who we are because it, it really is a unique network and uh, you make it's friends for life, deep friendships and uh, just a, a number of them that I've got um, that are just 
a part of my life now that I, I can't do without. It's like, I, you know, I can't imagine not being a part of, of BRI now. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I think about, I mean, as you know, on a, on a personal level, as life has ebbed and flowed over the past few years, I mean, I feel like my connection to Blue Ridge and those relationships are a lot of what have helped keep me going. Yep. Um, yep. You know, having, no having the opportunity to be with folks and gather with folks and um, has been huge, huge. Yep. yep. So Heather, a couple of questions that I like to ask all the guests that come on the show. And, and, the, and the first one is more for me than anybody, because I'm just always curious about uh, who the leaders are in your early career or life that have helped shape your view of leadership? Are there one or two people that you could look back on and say, you know, here, here was a leader who really impacted me and here's, here's how or why who comes to mind? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, well, so I'd say for me, um, you know, on a, on a very personal level, I think way before my career began, um, I feel like I was definitely really influenced by my grandmother who was a strong leader in her community. Um, so, you know, first woman who served on the city council in her small town in Georgia, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, was very active in various civic organizations. Um, and so I think I, I think I watched her, you know, as a young child, um, not even really knowing what leadership was at that point, but just always had a deep respect for how engaged she was in her community and um, how respected she was. Um, so I think definitely that influenced me. Um, <clears throat> and I recall when she, um, this when she retired from the city council, there was an article in the paper about her and she was quoted. Um, these are not her exact words, but something along the lines of, you know, I know, I know not everyone is always going to be happy with the choices I made, but I hope people know I always did what I thought was in the best interest of the community. And so I think that that statement really has stuck with me. Mm. Um, and then in terms of my career, I, um, I think I don't think there's just one person. I think I've had various folks along the way who have supported me, um, who've, you know, given me opportunities to try to try new things. Um, I did. I did have one colleague in particular who, when I was first stepping into a role as an executive director, and I was just shy of my 30th birthday, um, I feel quite confident when I say I don't think I really knew exactly what I was doing. I know I didn't. Um, but who really was encouraging and said, you, you have what it takes, you have what it takes to do this. And you definitely should apply for this position. And, um, you know, there'll, there'll be an opportunity for you to learn a lot of things that you don't feel like, you know, um, and I just think that little nudge along the way. And then she was someone who, you know, for many years, I would reach out to with questions and, you know, sometimes when I doubted things, um, would, you know, really appreciated her guidance and leadership. Um, so I think that, and I mean, I think I've been fortunate to work with a lot of people who've influenced me in um, big and small ways. Um, and I'll say one thing that just in a, in a more of a broader general sense, I think one thing that has been really inspirational for me, um, especially when I was younger and um, new in an executive director role was working in early childhood, I mean, it's a primarily female dominated field. And so the opportunity to work along, and there are definitely men, but in this case, many incredibly talented and gifted female leaders, um, I think has been very powerful to me. Um, I don't, you know, I didn't, I mean, when I was, you know, when I was much younger, I don't think I realized what an impact that would have. Um, But other women who are balancing, you know, 
their professional duties, with their parental roles, their family, their family duties. Um, I think that has also brought a lot of inspiration to me. Absolutely. Yeah. I always wonder why aren't there more men in early childhood work? I, I would go to these big summits and be the only male there. And, uh, you know, it's just like, what, you know, I, I you know, I sort of kind of get it, but it's, um, I'd like, I'd like to see more of the male persuasion in that work because it's, it's critical. It's, it, this is all hands on deck, you know, but I don't know. Some of the, some of that just kind of works out that way, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I thought there are, there are an increasing number of men and, and yet it is still a, a heavily female yeah. dominated field. Yeah, no doubt. Um, Heather, that's awesome. And one of the reasons I love asking that question and hearing people's stories is because it's so often the little things, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not like, well, most of the people that answer that question on the show, it's been some little moment or story, or like in your case, a quote or just something, you know, one fact you might know about somebody. Uh, now that I know more about your grandmother, I know where you get it. <laughs> like I, I understand you a little boy. I get that drive and that success and that caring for your community. It, it makes sense. And I, I think it's important to know who our leaders are and, and why and recognize them and also acknowledge that, Hey, someone's looking to us right now. Like, you know, when they're on a podcast 20 years from now and they talk about a leader in their early life or career that impacted them, you know, are they going to talk about us? You know, I would, I would hope that's the case. I'd hope we're having that kind of impact on somebody. Uh, last question, Heather, if you had the sort of, you know, 22nd Heather Adams tenet of leadership for the world to hear, and you had one thing you thought all leaders needed to hear above all else, what would that be? What's your number one piece of advice for leaders? I think it's to listen. Mm. Um, And I mean that, you know, in so many different ways, I mean, to listen to the people around you, um, I mean, to listen to, you know, your inner gut, um, to, you know, to listen, to listen and to learn, um, and not, not to listen, just to respond Mm -hmm. and just to answer, um, but to really listen. I think, um, in, in the social change world, um, it's so important that we listen and specifically we listen to the people who are impacted by the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's critical. I mean, my, my current role, um, our, our work is family led. And so really listening to families and their responses and what, what it is, what is it that families need? You know, what do they identify as what's best for their children? Um, mm. I could have lots of ideas, but I, I have to listen to them and follow their leadership. Wow. Um, think that's really critical is you and yeah i mean that's i mean that's how you learn you learn you learn by listening I mean, you can read you can do all those things but you learn so much by just listening and soaking in i wish i had come up with that that was good you know it's a, <laughs> you're one of those few people who can answer that big like giant uh ethereal question with one word what a and what a great one word and what a great sometimes i try hard to follow directions (laughs) (laughs) what a great piece of advice heather this has been awesome um congratulations on your new role even though it's becoming less new now right is it is it a year yet it's not a year yet is it not a year no not a year so i like to still consider myself very new (laughs) (laughs) well congratulations on that well-earned, well-deserved. Congratulations on your successful leadership of BRI. Can't wait for this year's conference. I hope people will 
check it out. The link is on our our podcast page. It's blueridgeleaders.org. So I hope you'll check it out and check us out. And Heather, I can't say thanks enough for not only being generous with your time, but just opening up and practicing what you, what you preach throughout this episode of bringing your whole self to the table. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. See you here next Monday morning, folks. Lead on.